Joshua chapter 14. Joshua 14 serves uh, primarily as a specific example of Israel receiving their inheritance. The chapter points out, or points to Caleb as the example of how Israel's tribes ought to be extending the original conquest by clearing out the Canaanites, solidifying their own tribal portions, right? Chapter 14 opens a very, I guess, a, a large section that deals with tribal allotments in the land of Canaan. Some of it will kind of have to go over in, in pieces, but um, that's the land west of the Jordan River. The section begins here in 14.1. It doesn't actually end until 1951. It's bookended with the stories of the two original faithful spies from Numbers 13 and 14 receiving their inheritances. Caleb here in 14, 6 through 15, and of course Joshua in 19, 49 to 50. I think seeing that instructs us on that, why this is here, this section. Why do we have these lists of allotments framed by these examples of faith? What's happening there? And chapters 14 through 17 also provide a description of Caleb's great faith in 14, 6 through 15 against the backdrop of all this caution and hesitancy from the two tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh in 17, 14 through 18. And we'll get to, of course, down the road. But faith is not easy. And the main reason for this is that it doesn't come naturally. Right? You learn in reading the history of Israel, particularly here in Joshua, that it, something's wrong with us. Right? It, it, even as the people of God, we, we, no matter what God does, no matter what God says or makes clear or proves, we will continue to doubt Him. We won't naturally believe Him. We won't naturally fall in line. God had promised Israel an inheritance. What else did they need to see to believe that it was theirs? He had won victories for them time and time again. They are in the land. They've, for all intents and purposes, conquered the land, and still they balk and they're hesitant. They still won't obey God's Word or trust His promise. This is the same struggle we each deal with today in light of what God has promised to us. It's too hard to stay faithful. If receiving, let alone keeping the inheritance, is up to us, it will not happen. It's too hard to believe the promise when we see how evil the world around us is. We get overwhelmed by it. It makes us think God is maybe not there or is not coming through, let alone how we still struggle with sin and doubt in our own lives. Will we be okay then tonight when we read this? When we realize all this, are we going to be okay? Are we going to make it? The inheritance promised to us will be gained by grace through faith in Christ who has already accomplished all that is needed. You and I are meant to receive His Word as the truth. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your people. I pray, Lord, that You would enable me to preach tonight. Lord, enable me to make the meaning of this text clear for us. Father, I pray that You would be near to all that have come tonight, Lord, that you would enable us all to understand why we need to hear this. 
the desperate situation we're in that only Christ can conquer for us. May we leave believing this and knowing this is true. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance of the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. So this is basically the introduction to this whole section that I talked about that ends in chapter 19. You can probably tell that the way that it reads. Verses 3 and 4 explain why only nine and a half tribes received actual portions in Canaan. Two and a half tribes received theirs east of the Jordan. And then, of course, the tribe of Levi didn't receive any. The Levites, um, they didn't get an allotment. They only got cities to dwell in, places that they could have their livestock, etc. And then Joseph, who actually constitutes two tribes when you see his name, Ephraim and Manasseh. So, all in all, twelve tribes. Two and a half east of the Jordan, nine and a half west of the Jordan. In verses 2 to 5, we find that they carried out this process just as the Lord had commanded Moses, which he did back in Numbers 26, 55. It's not very exciting, but it does note the fact of obedience. It's there. They did obey. Obedience to God is necessary in the small and mundane details as much as it is in the larger, more dynamic events in Israel's history. No command of God is considered trivial. Right? All obedience is both necessary and significant because it's God that we're talking about, His Word. So either we better obey perfectly or we better have a substitute who has obeyed in our place and credits that to our account and we can use that as our own or we will never receive, much less keep, the inheritance promised to us. And so into that, Caleb is presented as the ideal example of faith in the conquest. Look at verse 6 or 6. We'll pick it up there. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance 
of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. The first thing to notice here is the devotion of Caleb's faith. He remembers the episodes of Numbers 13 and 14 when Moses sent the twelve spies from Kadesh Barnea into the land of Canaan to investigate. Here in verse 8, we're reminded what the response of ten of those spies did to the people. It caused their hearts to melt. They saw what was in there. They didn't think the people could do it. And they come back saying, we can't go up there. We can't take the land. Faithlessness affected everyone. The fear of those ten men, the unwillingness to obey the word of the Lord, to trust His promise, that is, affected everybody. It made everybody's heart melt in Israel. When the promise is doubted in the camp, it affects everybody. They were afraid. Canaanite cities were too well fortified. Their military was huge, literally. They, they, they were giants, right? We're not going over there. We can't defeat them. Caleb, however, and Joshua, but here the text focuses on Caleb. Caleb is not afraid. He disagreed. Why? Because he wholly followed the Lord. That is, he completely believed what the Lord had said. We're told that this was his response three times in this chapter. Verse 8, verse 9, and verse 14. That's the devotion of faith. That devotion meant to stand on the word of the Lord along with Joshua, even if it put you in the minority, which it will often do. It almost cost Caleb his life in Numbers 4, 6 through 10. People hate it when other people cling to the promise. When other people believe the Lord, the people that doubt will get angry with them. Caleb said, look, we can possess this land. Don't be afraid of the giants. God has given their land to us. Let's go. God told us it's ours. In the New Testament, you, you look at Caleb. What are we meant to see there? In the New Testament, we discover in Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 and elsewhere that faith is not a character trait that some people naturally have and others don't. It's not something that some people are able to work up and other people are not. In Ephesians 2, 8-10 and 10 and elsewhere, faith is the gift of God that leads to salvation. Faith is a gift. If Caleb had faith, then God gave it to him. That's why he had it. Here's what it looks like in action when God gives faith. Devoted faith is courageous. God gives the willingness to us to stand alone and go against the grain if that's what's needed. This account of Caleb's lonely faith, for lack of a better word, is preached very powerfully to Israel later in Judges 2, 6-23, shortly after they've settled in Canaan. Why? Because more and more Israelites at that time, by that time, are settling into being Canaanites, worshiping nature, bowing the knee to Baal or Baal, preferring his gifts to the word of the Lord. The remnant that was faithful certainly would have felt the pressure to conform, compromise into syncretism. It's so easy to do. Just, just mix a little bit of worship of other gods or idols with the worship of the Lord. That's what the golden calf was. It wasn't a denial that God was the Lord. It was saying, can't we just worship Him like we worship the other gods? And can't we do things the way that we did before and have them be a part of this? So, just that's not what faith does. And they're reminded of Caleb. 
He hadn't flinched even if it isolated him. And God gave him what he promised to him. Throughout this passage, Caleb refers to the anchor of his faith. Why he believed. Why he still believes now. When he goes to Joshua about his inheritance in verse 6, he bases his request on what the Lord said to Moses about it. He keeps coming back to that. Just as he said in verse 10a. And since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses in verse 10 be and that which the Lord spoke on that day in verse 12a as he promised again just as he said in verse 12b Caleb hammers it home five times in the passage that God had made promises he asks nothing but for what God had said true faith has its anchor in the actual promises of God not made up ones or wishful ones right we we don't have any right or authority to have confidence where God has not been clear. Right? Or where if God has not promised something, we shouldn't lay claim to it. But if He has, we most certainly should. Caleb's faith is biblical faith. True faith is anchored on God's Word as spoken. When we hear that faith is what pleases God in the Bible, that all along what pleased God was that if you simply believed His Word, the point is not to, okay, I need to become faithful. I need to work up faith. We can't. We don't have it. Right? Without the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, we will struggle to believe. We will doubt. It's, faith is not natural. You can't bank on it. It's a gift. We go to Him for the gift of His Word, of His promise to us, and we ask Him. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I do and I don't. Right? Like we get in Mark 8, we, we see men like trees walking. God has healed us, He's put His hand on our eyes and enabled us to see, but we don't see as clearly as we need to see. We still need the touch of the Lord to see clearly all the time. We want what Caleb had been given by God. Whatever Caleb has, that's what we want. Well, faith is a gift. We want God to gift us. We want to go before Him and ask to be able to believe His promises. Not assume we can once we've heard them. Never base your faith on your feelings. Ever. Your feelings have nothing to do with whether or not you're actually justified and forgiven and righteous before God. Nothing. Nothing. God never promised that you would feel What he says is true about you. He just says it's true about you in Christ. Don't ever base your faith on your feelings. Never base your standing or your relationship with God or whether or not he's able to keep his word on how you feel. Right? Don't, don't have faith in your faith. Don't think that something's wrong between you and God because you don't feel particularly strong in your faith right now. Or whenever it is that you begin to waver. Don't have faith in Caleb's faith. Right? Have faith in Caleb's God. He is the one who makes and keeps all the promises. Faith is not a force of nature. It's not a force of the flesh. It's the gift of God. Faith is pleasing to God for that reason. Because faith lets go of everything else to take hold of Him through His promises to us. There's no other way to take hold of God but to receive His promise. The most proactive thing you can do is passively receive the grace of God in Christ. 
in verses 10 and 11, we see the perspective of faith, the perspective that faith gives. Look down there for me again. Verse 10, or with me again. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as He said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses. So they've been in the land conquering for about five years now while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. 85 years old. I'd love to have a man 85 years old to talk like Caleb. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Faith remembers what God has done, and it remembers it with thanksgiving, with excitement. Caleb remembers the goodness of God to date. He's been kept alive for the last 45 years. And that's not a small thing to say. He's been kept alive, if you remember, through wilderness and through war. Yet God was still blessing him with strength and stamina, even at 85. Faith looks at things through the perspective of what God has already done, what He's already proven. So when we ask questions of doubt, does He love me? You have the answer to that. You don't need to feel it or wait to feel it. You have the answer. He loves you. It was demonstrated once and for all at the cross. And His Word keeps telling us that He loves us and that we're His. The Spirit continues to bear witness to His love, to His grace, to His mercy, to His forgiveness. All that you need is found in the Word that the Lord has already spoken. Will He save me if I call out to Him? Yes, you know that. He's promised it. Will He be with me and never forsake me? Yes, you know the answer to that. Not only has He told you, you've seen Him do it in the Word time and time and time and time again. So you have to, in some sense, drag God's goodness in the past into the present with you. Praise Him for this. Ask Him to be with you as He's been with His people from strength to strength to strength, from faith to faith to faith. Keep giving me the gift of God. Keep me in Your Word. And God's gift of faith is energizing in verse 12. Look down there again. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities, plural, It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And then Joshua gives him his inheritance in verse 13. Another promise kept. So here stands in Scripture an 85-year-old man who instead of being grumpy and complaining and impossible to please and critical and lazy is filled with faith and hope and thanksgiving. Now what accounts for that? Was he just of good stock? What, the stock of Adam? No, he hadn't forgotten what God had done or said. That's it. He remembers the goodness and mercy of God in the past. And in verse 12, we also see that he remembers how difficult it all had been. He's not, it's not wishful thinking. He's not looking at it with blinders on. He remembers that God had still come through regardless of how hard it was. To stand alone. To believe that you could defeat these giant Amalekites. He says to Joshua, you remember how awful it was that day. You remember what it was like when the other ten spies with us balked. And we stood alone. And they cried for days that we couldn't do it. While everybody looked at us like we were crazy. And that's why he wants his inheritance now. Because there are real live Amalekites in there. Still. 
and he knows God will defeat them. So he says, give me the land promised to me. I have work to do. At 85. 85. Of course, if your physical health is keeping you from being like this, that's one thing. We're not talking about that. Caleb wasn't like this because he was a natural optimist while the Israelites were realists. It was because Caleb believed God's promise while the other Israelites doubted it. That's the difference. Caleb knows you just you can't out-measure the goodness of God. You can't overshoot it in your thinking. He says in the second part of verse 12, it may be that the Lord will be with me. Maybe he'll keep doing what he's always done and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. He'd done it before. Why wouldn't he do it again? It's, it's not doubt, it's expectancy. And notice, Caleb isn't dreaming of and wishing for and having faith in something that he wants and so he's going to try to co-opt God into getting it for him. Some earthly thing that he would want whether he had God's blessing or not. Caleb wants specifically what God promised for him. He's not trying to build his own kingdom. He's not trying to go his own way. I want this God who has been faithful to me to to keep being faithful to me. I want what He has to give. Caleb knows God isn't his personal errand boy. That's not what he's doing here. He also knows that God keeps His promises, so why not bank on them? He hasn't let us down yet, Caleb says. So Caleb isn't being irresponsible. He's not being cavalier. His actions are based on what he's already seen and he already knows. He isn't believing God to do something out of character for God or ridiculous, but to keep doing precisely what he's always done. For sinners, we we don't irreverently presume on God's grace when we need it, but we need to know that he gives it when we do. And beloved, in in the ebb and flow of everyday life, it's going to be very hard to not presume on God's grace being there. Sometimes that's what happens. But it's okay. It's there. You come into Romans 6. Paul isn't arguing there with, with, with antinomians, right? People that believe that, well, because... Jesus has saved us, we can do whatever we want. I've, that's always the accusation and the fear. I've never met anybody that said that, ever, in 20 plus years of ministry. I've never had somebody say that. So does that mean, so I'm going to go ahead and do whatever I want. I, I think that's a boogeyman. So that you don't have to deal with what's actually being said. Paul is arguing with people that are against what he's saying, who would say, well, if you tell people that you're justified by grace through faith alone, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, that's not what I'm saying at all. Right? He's saying you're going to sin and grace is going to abound because that's what grace does. So you can't presume on grace as though it's wrong or sinful to you to say, for you to say, I know that grace is going to be there. It's going to be there. That's just the way it is. Now there's, there's, there's something in chapter 17, of course it will come later, that we want to make reference to here at this point in the text here in 14, 6 through 15 in the story of Caleb where he's presented as this model of faith, basically. Chapters 14 through 17 depict in quite a lot of detail the land west of the Jordan inherited by Judah and those two Joseph tribes. There's a large block of material from here to 1718 after this lengthy introduction about 
Caleb. So the way it's structured by the author is that the part in the beginning refers to the faith and confidence of Caleb, while the latter will highlight the complaining spirit and doubt and faithlessness of Joseph's tribes in pinning down the land. So you have this contrast being made. Joseph's tribes, the one who was favored by God and held up through slavery until he became second in command of all Egypt, his people, his line, doubted God's word. Right? They, they, it's, it's, it's as if what God had done for Joseph never happened. They just didn't even think about it. Faith is not hereditary. Right? The, the gift of God must be continually bestowed on us or it won't be there. It doesn't pass naturally. What passes naturally is sin and doubt. The gift must keep on being given by God every day. You're never staying in Christ for a single second because of you or you and Jesus. You're staying in Christ because the gift of God is still active in you. That's why, that's one of the reasons why we believe you cannot lose your salvation. Because when does faith stop being active as a gift? It's always a gift. It's never what I'm clinging to or making happen. Here in Caleb's speech in verses 6-13, through 13, we hear these repeated references to what God or Moses had promised. We're reminded of how Caleb completely followed God even when it was unpopular. And we feel his energy as he faces new obstacles with the same Lord's help. The contrast here, that you get this picture of great faith in Caleb, and then all this doubt from people that also had seen God's work and word in action. So you have faith and complaining and doubting. That's, that's, isn't it amazing that a lack of faith in the Bible in the Old Testament almost always comes out in the form of complaining and nagging and murmuring? What, see, that's the evidence of a lack of faith. Do you hear that? That's what that is. That's what complaining is. That's what murmuring is. That's what grumbling is. It's a lack of faith. Why? Because it doesn't really matter what's going on. God hasn't moved. What is the problem? It, it, I'm not going to get my way. I'm going to complain. Where is God in all this? Where is the gift of salvation in all this? How does that not factor into our attitudes? Right? It, it's, it's always, how does faithlessness come out? We act like it only comes out by these gross sins that you commit. It comes out when you can't be satisfied. When it's just just complaining and grumbling and griping. And that's what Joseph tribes do. That's exactly what Israel did in the wilderness. Oh, Moses, man, can't, can't we just go back? Can't we just go back? I mean, are we supposed to eat this same stuff every day? And just manna, manna, manna. Yeah, yeah. It sustains your soul. Are you mad because you don't like the taste? Right? Caleb is... The, the, the contrast that forms here between Caleb and the complaints of Joseph's tribes is very powerful. Because Joseph's tribes are not one man. They should have a lot more boldness to conquer what's left than Caleb does. And Caleb's, what makes Caleb different? It's not his muscles. It's not his vitality. It's that he believes the promise. And they don't. They lack zeal. Caleb is older. He's ready for a worthwhile fight because of God's promises. 
the same pagan armies that intimidate the sons of Joseph in 1716 and 18, make Caleb want to fight, right? They see the enemy and balk, and Caleb sees the enemy and says, yes, that's where God moves. Let's go. What is one group's apprehension is another man's reason for courage. And in the middle is God. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So notice how nicely then 14, 16, 15 forms a positive heading to this section. While 17, 14 through 18 portray a very negative ending to this section. Because when it's left in our hands, that's what happens. That's what's natural. Not the faith of Caleb. The doubt of Joseph's tribe. The author wanted us to see this. He wanted us to see the ideal response of faith and what that looks like versus the complaining hesitancy and fear that arises from a lack of faith. Where there is complaining, forgetfulness of God's works, and a fear to change and move forward, there is always a lack of faith. Always. When our eyes are off of God and then on ourselves or others, we become overly cautious, grouchy, set in our ways, angry, and unbelieving. God help us. Israel had to respond rightly to the challenges of possessing the land God had given them. It'll spell the difference between fidelity and apostasy. So in the story of Caleb and Ephraim and Nassar, pictures of how Israel could be if they would believe God in Canaan. That's what Caleb is showing. It could be like this, but it won't be. It won't be. It'll be like this. And eventually they'll lose the land. And the Messiah will come when there's no king on the throne. And Rome is in charge. That's where all this will end. It's not where everything will end, but it's where this story will end. So, to read it is tedious, no question. I'm not going to pretend that I'm so pious that I enjoy reading cities and towns and names. It, I don't, right? It, it, it's, it's a tedious section, but it's, it's not. Because it's, it's not about geography. It's a picture of the crisis we all face in light of what God has promised. Will it be faith or will it be unbelief? James picks up on this, that even the idea of planning your future, short term or long term, without believing that if the Lord wills it, it won't happen, that's, he calls it arrogance and pride. And so, when things that we want don't happen and we get angry about them, what we're saying is that, God, you were supposed to do it this way and you didn't. You're doing a bad job. Right? That, that's, that's what, whether it's in the smallest thing or the largest thing. This is how desperate our need for a Savior is. Right? Because getting angry and losing your temper because the light changed before you got to it is like cosmic treason against God. Right? That, that's what we're dealing with here. So it's not that we say, well, great, it's hopeless. No, it's, it's not hopeless. You must see yourself for what you really are. I must see myself for what I really am so that Christ's light may shine all the brighter. You don't have to walk around all day like a sheriff of your own sin or others. Know that it's there. You're, you're a mess. I'm a mess. Right? Just bank on needing what only God can give. Bank on needing the gift of faith. 
bank on needing God to reawaken you to His grace every single day. Bank on it. Because then you end up like Caleb. You don't say, I like Caleb, I want to be like Caleb. No. You say, how was Caleb like that? If it was natural, they all would have been like that. They all come from the same two people. We need faith. We need the gift of God. We need to see that... Well, I'll actually, I'll, I'll come to that in just a moment. In every town, along every border of the promised land, will disciples of Caleb or the doubters of Joseph's tribes be found. God has been faithful forever. He has never reneged on a promise. He's never decided not to do what He said He would do, ever. You can't weary Him. And listen, you aren't the one sheep in His fold that finally gets Him to throw up His hands and quit. Right, that's, that's not you. That's not you. You're, you're, that's not going to happen. Like, if we really think that after all this time and all these promises, one of us in the Ohio Valley is going to make God say, all right, never mind. No, it's not going to happen. He's seen what you are. He hears your complaints and mine. He knows our doubts and our fears are grumbling and lamenting. He knows it all. When He's already given us the new heavens and the new earth as a possession, we will one day most certainly take hold of. You will be there. You will be there. Why? Because of this God. Not because of Caleb. Because of Christ. When God saw that you and I would be like this, wallowing in our blood and sin and doubt, like newborn Israel and the prophet Ezekiel, He sent His Son to die for us. That's how He responded. He has breathed on you and said to you, live. So trace His past. Come to know that God. Follow His record. He's not going to change now or ever. The Bible is the story of who God is for you. The inheritance promised to us will be gained by grace through faith in Christ who has already accomplished everything we need to receive it. See, Caleb is a great model of faith, but he's not your Savior. And being like Caleb will get you nothing who is the God who made a man like Caleb when he was surrounded by doubt and fear and unbelief and confusion and complaining and grumbling? The God of grace and the God of glory made Caleb. May He make us. Would you stand, please?